Hey everyone. We tend to judge the Middle Ages as primitive and violent because they super were. <laughs> Today's book is Timeline by Michael Crichton. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and if I could go back in time, I would besiege the production company that made the terrible movie of this book. <laughs> And I'm David Vance. I too followed the Michael Crichton path of becoming a writer by first failing to be a doctor. Timeline asks, what if a bunch of medieval historians time traveled back to the only era where they are cool? <laughs> and this is The Book Pile. I'm going to push back a little bit on your joke because he never wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> Even I read that he went to med school. And within the first couple weeks was like, oh, I hate this. Sure. But I'm saying he didn't fail at it. He was just like, well, I'll go through with this, but I will simultaneously write and sell novels while in med school. <laughs> oh, I'm not saying he was bad at it. I'm saying we just realized we hated it at different places in our progression uh, and debt. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Today we're doing a Michael Crichton deal where if you leave us a review... That will turn out to be a terrible mistake full of hubris with unimaginable consequences. <laughs> First review writer says, I recommend this podcast. Lots to laugh about, fun to listen to, inspired me to read more books this year, even some of those presented by the hosts. They don't reveal too much about the books, and I don't have to read the stupid books myself. That's a win. <laughs> It's a lot happening in that <laughs> review. Because <laughs> at first I was like, okay, cool. We inspire them to read more books. And then they're like, even the ones that the hosts like. I think the flattering interpretation is that most of our podcasts are so educational that they don't feel the need to read them anymore. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a healthier way to interpret that. I always look at the glass as half narcissistic. <laughs> All right. And if you want to see me live, I'm going to be live at the Stress Factory in New Brunswick, New Jersey. <laughs> That's a real place. Wednesday, February 23rd. And then I'll be at another Stress Factory in Connecticut, the 25th to the 26th. Go to kellenerskin.com for tickets and the location of that other city. Finally, our next two books are This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends. And our roast of Goldfinger. And now, without further ado, here are six lessons that we took from Timeline. All right, lesson one. You don't actually want to live in the past. <laughs> so if you ever hire a PR team, hire the team that convinced us the Middle Ages were magical. Because <laughs> <laughs> this book and Game of Thrones both show, you know... They were pure hell. <laughs> this book shows there's just casual murder and terrible living conditions, no book pile, beheadings. And I've noticed that even before COVID, it's kind of in vogue to talk about how modern times are awful and it's getting worse. And I wish that if you said that enough times, you got Freaky Friday with someone from the past. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you think today's bullying is bad, you're going to love bullying and the Black Death. <laughs> The Middle Ages had to come up with a shorter name for pulling out someone's bowels. They needed an efficient way to say that. And then there are also some people who argue we were happiest as hunter-gatherers. And first off, 
if you say that and you're not currently gathering, yeah. <laughs> like if you believed it, you'd be doing it. You wouldn't be trying to sell me on it at this Super Bowl party. <laughs> but I, I looked up that argument and here's what one study said. Accepting outside forces such as violence and disease, hunter-gatherers can live up to approximately 70 years of age. And I'm like, why would you not count violence and disease? <laughs> <laughs> Those aren't freebies. <laughs> like, what do you think most people are dying of? Yeah, right. It's like, <laughs> here's an amazing fact about the human body. A person could swim from San Francisco to Hawaii if drowning was impossible. <laughs> Also, another reason that you know hunting and gathering wasn't great is all kids are scared of the dark, even though nowadays the dark is mostly safe. And I think it's because we have a genetic past where there was something terrifying in the dark. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think kids are scared of monsters because they used to live in a world of monsters. Oh, man. I never thought of it that way. But it makes so much sense to me now because as a child... The scariest thing was going to the bathroom in the middle of the night and then walking back to my room down a dark hall. I mean, I never uh -huh. walked. I, I sprinted. But isn't it very <laughs> likely that if you had to get up at three in the morning in a forest and you peed, you're like, well, uh -huh. now I'm attracting every predator. <laughs> uh -huh. Guess I'd better run. <laughs> Hope they don't find me under a blanket. <laughs> Every child now has this horrible survival instinct they no longer need, usually. <laughs> Nowadays, we get to say to our kids, it's okay, monsters aren't real. But back then, <laughs> back then, I'm sure it was a parent like grabbing that kid by the shoulders like, you did what? <laughs> like to everyone in that settlement, we have to leave now. <laughs> You're just constantly helping your kid on their 40 time. <laughs> Wolves are real. How many times do we have to tell you? <laughs> but I, I get a little annoyed when I hear people talk about how the world is like worse than it's ever been. Because, mm. I mean, if I told you, all right, you're going to be randomly born into one person on Earth. You just need to pick the year you're born. You would definitely pick modern times. <laughs> That's so you know what I mean? true. <laughs> yeah. Like in, in terms of starvation and suffering and war. Yeah. Anyway, next time you play that game of when would you want to live in the past, instead of asking like Wild West, ancient Egypt, you got to be like, okay, pre-anesthesia or pre-regulation of thumbscrews. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Lesson two. Fiction can be even more fulfilling when it contains nonfiction. So this also works the opposite way when you're writing your journal. <laughs> so I love how Michael Crichton would write what he was interested in, often combining a couple major topics into one story and then researching the crap out of it. Mm -hmm. Like the major topics of this story are 14th century France and quantum physics. <laughs> Two imaginary things. <laughs> Does, he <laughs> Does he just have like dice with different words <laughs> written on them? <laughs> All right. Dinosaurs and... Genes? And then he's like, oh no, I'll write about the fun science genes instead. That would have been a very different dinosaurs with pants. <laughs> Your scientists were so focused on whether they could. <laughs> 
So then, as most of his books do, Timeline has a multi-page bibliography in the back, which, by the way, only includes the research papers and books that he thinks the reader would find interesting. (laughs) Remember how the Da Vinci Code's bibliography was a forged document? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Dan Brown's like, peer-reviewed studies boring (laughs) so i think in a story if you can paint a credible picture then we won't know where the reality stops so i love this this picture that he starts to paint in the introduction he says if you were to say to a physicist in 1899 that in 1999 millions of people would take to the air every hour that you could cross the atlantic at 2,000 miles an hour that humankind would travel to the moon and then lose interest (laughs) (laughs) Which I think is a great line. That people would carry telephones weighing only a few ounces and speak anywhere in the world without wires. And that these devices would operate by something the size of a postage stamp using the theory of something called quantum mechanics. They would pronounce you mad. Then he continues later, in 1998, quantum teleportation was demonstrated in three labs around the world, which is true. In Ensbruck, Rome, and at Caltech. In the 1980s, several corporations undertook quantum research, Fujitsu, Quantum Devices, IBM, and so did a New Mexico research company called ITC. And then the story continues from there, ITC being the one fictional part of this entire couple of paragraphs. So he's a liar. So I... But I just love that instead of starting the book with once upon a time, there is this magical science company that made futuristic computers. <laughs> so in place of that, he, he lays out where technology really is headed. And we hit the ground running with this believable entity that he has just sort of gently crafted into reality. Yeah. And what's crazy is that organizations in both the U.S. and China have reached quantum supremacy, where there are some problems that they have now found a better way of solving with a quantum computer than a traditional computer. Wow. Have they solved the one where they can pay people in China more than $4 an hour to make computers? (laughs) I went to the China-sponsored sites, and yes. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, I appreciate that Crichton's made-up companies always sound like real companies. Uh Like in Jurassic Park, the genetic research company is InGen. But like, don't you find that most of the time writers get pretty lazy when it comes to like fictional companies and products and stuff? It'll be like, I don't know how many times I've seen like a sitcom or a cartoon where it's not supposed to be funny, but a character is like uh, drinking soda that's called like Yum Yum Fizz. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so the brain gets a dopamine hit every every time you learn something new and i i think well i just got one when you said that <laughs> i also think it's why michael Crichton's book can be such a pleasure to read like dopamine gives you that happy feeling it's also triggered by other things so if all the documentaries i've watched are true then i think you would become euphoric if you could read a Crichton novel while also eating ice cream and receiving text messages. (laughs) Is that not how you did it? (laughs) 
So I think the the reality of all of this is interesting and it makes it believable and it's fun to learn stuff. So here's an example of how he sort of layers all of these things together. He says at one point, the 14th century was a vanished world, a religious world. Most people went to church at least once a day, but it was an incredibly violent world where invading armies killed everyone. Women and children routinely were hacked to death, a world where women were imagined to be powerless and delicate, yet they ruled fortunes and commanded castles, took lovers at will, and plotted assassination and rebellion. A world of shifting boundaries and shifting allegiances. It was a world of death, of sweeping plagues, of constant warfare. So I, I love that his books are just full of these moments, but he's also moving the story forward because this happens just moments before our main characters are about to travel to this moment in history. So now he's he's setting up a world that they're about to visit and increasing the sense of danger in it. Uh-huh. And, and again, the, the book is full of these things that are sort of like the educational and, and enlightening and, and perspectives that I never had before that made history just come come alive for me. So there's a this character who is about to joust and he's got his knight gear on. He says, hot inside a helmet, sweat pouring into his eyes, but no way to wipe it away. So it's just moments like that where I never even thought about that, but obviously it makes sense because it gets like up to 110, 120 degrees inside armor. So you're going to be sweating, but you can't ever just like wipe your face like i would go crazy <laughs> that's why my family evolved a really long tongue <laughs> i also learned that uh my uh, my 10 year old also informed me i think via bill nye that astronauts will attach velcro to the inside of their helmet if they need to scratch their face oh which makes sense. Like, but can you imagine there was a time where someone thought of that because something happened? <laughs> <laughs> Some guys on a spacewalk 280 miles above the Earth just going insane, like slapping <laughs> their own help, just hoping, like praying they'll get struck by a micrometeorite <laughs> to end this madness. I was thinking about the other day, Alan Shepard was the first American in space but he was shot up in a spaceship that had no windows. So he doesn't know if he's been to space. We could all be pranking him. There could have been NASA engineers outside that ship going, vroom, vroom. <laughs> Just like sort of rocking it back and forth with one hand because they're trying to keep a laugh from coming out with their other. <laughs> what does outer space sound like? Uh, stifled giggles? <laughs> all right, lesson three. Find excuses to play. So John Cleese talked about this in our last episode, how, you know, so much creativity is just playing. And I mean this as a compliment. I think Michael Crichton is an adult who you always wonder if he's a kid in disguise. Because <laughs> he's like, what if quantum foam at the subatomic level made it possible for you to go to a castle? <laughs> or... What if genomic technology advanced to the point that you could make dinosaurs? <laughs> what if you could mimic human consciousness with silicon substrates so there could be a park with cowboys? <laughs> like, I, I genuinely think a big part of why he's been so successful is he just stays in touch with his inner child. Although I, I do think he would have been more successful as a venture capitalist if he just invested in all these ideas. <laughs> <laughs> 
Another thing that I appreciate about him, in the afterward to State of Fear, he expresses his disdain for much of the scientific community and how papers are published with academic speak, where he pretty much says, you guys are doing this just to show off to each other. So Uh don't be surprised when the public doesn't know all this stuff that you are discovering. (laughs) Yeah, it does become like a weird modern version of Latin where it's like, how can we talk such that we can close out all the commons? (laughs) (laughs) How can we put up these crazy paywalls on research that was funded by taxpayer dollars? (laughs) It's, uh, It's refreshing. It's sort of neat to see that like he is... He is such a fan of science and good science, as he uh-huh. as he calls it, and he does enjoy like spreading knowledge. But he also just he does it in a fun way. Like he clearly uh-huh. could have just written a dry nonfiction book about castles in the 14th century, uh-huh. but instead he weaves in. Like I would love to see a pie chart showing the fiction versus nonfiction in his book specifically this one because it is you do learn so much without you know without knowing it as we've said just like our podcast (laughs) you get tricked into knowing Uh, things most academic research on the communication side is structured as though the goal is to get you to not read it (laughs) (laughs) all right lesson four a bad voice actor can ruin a book. So I, I I squirm a little bit at anyone who has judged the quality of this book on the voice acting, because this guy, he has a great regular voice, but you know, it's one of those things where unless you're gifted at range, just stick to what you can do. <laughs> <laughs> so here is a, here's an example of what I mean. So this is a part in the book when uh, Kate, one of the modern characters, is in back in time and she comes across an old man in the road. This is the old man voice. As she rode by, he said, I beg you, good master, I beg you. His voice was thin, (laughs) rasping. Give me some small thing to eat for I am poor and have no food. <laughs> I am poor and have no food. <laughs> what is this Westworld? <laughs> Who talks like that? <laughs> you know that, like in the recording booth, you get more than one take. Was the guy directing this audiobook? <laughs> like, no, he got it. Home run on the first try. Like, I don't understand how this actor is like. All right, hold on a sec. Need to get into my old man voice. <laughs> Boy, I am tired. I need to lay down. <laughs> this is a dramatic narrator who's trying to break into comic acting. <laughs> like what? So the old the old man, he's like he's like funny, right? <laughs> it was his grandpa Wally. I don't understand where. <laughs> I will say sometimes also in an audiobook, the suspense gets ruined because you can tell a character is evil just by the voice. <laughs> Which yes. also, that happens in this book when you meet Arno, because the narrator is like, well, if it isn't. <laughs> it's kind of like how in Iron Man, the big reveal is that Jeff Bridges is evil, but then on the cover, he's making an evil face. <laughs> 
I feel like movies do that sometimes. They sort of cheat because so many villains are bald. Like you just don't get heroes <laughs> that are. So when you get a Jeff Bridges like that, you're like, something's off about this guy. And it's like, yeah, thanks to every job interview I ever had. <laughs> I can't put my, I can't run my hand along it. But <laughs> while we're on the subject, other terrible things that happen in audiobooks. Mm. I hate it when you get to the very poignant ending of an audiobook. And then while you're just letting it sink in, before like the final sentence has faded away, it's like, this is audible. <laughs> <laughs> just to break any kind of moment you could have had. All right. Lesson five, add problems to increase the tension and don't stop. So I'm talking about stories here, not just like your life. I realize now how that sounds like some very <laughs> bad, broad advice. <laughs> It sounds like how some folks I know approach relationships carry on. <laughs> it's pretty nonstop when it comes to problems and then solutions to problems. Here's the, the moment that they arrive in the past and everything goes awry. It says, quote, their guides were dead. Their return marker was shattered, which meant that they were trapped here with no prospect of getting back. And it's just such a great page turner in the sense of if this were a Dan Brown novel and a chapter <laughs> ended with that sentence, you would turn the page and it would say, oh, it turns out one of the guys, uh, he actually was just unconscious <laughs> for a bit. <laughs> I feel like the chapter would end. The quality he saw in his guides and the marker made his blood run cold. <laughs> <laughs> And then you turn and it says, they were dead and it was blown up. <laughs> but what I think is great about this book and his, his books in general is that he won't just create complications for the protagonist. He'll create complications on all sides of the story so that mm. everything has to work out right. And it just compounds the suspense. So in this story specifically, on the medieval side, for the characters to be able to return to the present, they have to find everyone that they're looking for. They have to be all together in a spot at the same time. That area has to have enough open area around it. It has to be in a place where no outsiders can see, and they only have 48 hours to do it. And in addition to that, right off the bat, like one of the characters gets beheaded the moment they get there, <laughs> just showing that like anything can happen here. But then on the on the other end of it, the teleportation machine in the present was blown up minutes after they left. So it's just so much fun how much it compounds the tension because if one side fails, both sides fail. It it would be like if they rewrote the movie Apollo thirteen. And when Tom Hanks was like, Houston, we have a problem. We don't know if we're going to make it back. If then Houston was like, Apollo, we have a problem. The ocean dried up. <laughs> so I don't know where you're going to land. <laughs> All right. This lesson is pretty narrowly applicable, but when it is, it's super important. Lesson six. If you're looking for an important device and you're searching the body of your recently decapitated companion, remember to also search the head. <laughs> <laughs> All right, random facts. <laughs> so one of the running stories in this book is that these medieval historians hate castle tourists. And it's like, how dare you like castles without knowing everything about them? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I think the disdain for tourists is so funny because it, 
it just means someone interested in something outside of where they live. <laughs> like when New Yorkers hate tourists, they're like, I hate people who want to watch musicals, but not enough to move to the musical city. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny to me, too, when people don't understand how infrastructure is built and sustained. Because it's like, I hate all these tourists, but I still want to live in this place that makes 70% of its income off of tourism. <laughs> Can't they just send us their money and not come? <laughs> <laughs> and it's also funny, too, because it's like wanting to visit other places means that you're probably curious and have some openness and you like learning and you like experiencing new things, like all things that have helped humanity grow to where it is today. But I think we also just enjoy disliking people for weird reasons. <laughs> we never miss a chance to feel superior in very specific ways. There's this comic in the Bay Area, Ben Feldman, and he has this great joke that to me encapsulates that behavior. He said that he was at the zoo looking at gorillas and he was like, hey, look at these monkeys over here to his friend. And then one of the employees of the zoo said, they're not monkeys monkeys have tails and then a minute later this other family approached the glass and the mother from that family was like hey look at these monkeys and ben goes <laughs> what idiots <laughs> so i think the reality of an infinite multiverse would probably be much less fun than we think <laughs> we like to imagine that other universes would be like, ah, there's one where people are just big talking bananas, or there's one where Hitler unified the world, but in a good way. So like, <laughs> I don't think we all think that, Kellen. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean, though, like in every movie or cartoon that you've seen. I just think that like the real challenge would be navigating the multiverse to find these super interesting ones, because Infinite possibilities would mean that trillions and trillions of universes would be places where it's stuff like, ah, oh, there's one where the moon has one less pebble. I want to see that. <laughs> or there's one universe where someone in London tripped in 1643, but in our universe, he didn't. Like, this would be most of them, like just a molecule off. When I was younger, I once wrote a short story about a mad scientist who traveled universes, and we discover that the universe the story takes place in, uh, the only difference is that the R in Toys R Us isn't backwards. <laughs> so this book has one of the best burns that you can ever make on a guy the first time you see him without a shirt, which is make a concerned face and say, have you been sick? <laughs> I would love to go on a cruise and just use that line all day. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a part where Kate is impersonating a man as she walks through this scene of bloodshed. And it says, men shouted to her for help and she could only wave in what she hoped was a manly greeting and keep moving. <laughs> and I love that that's what she thinks a man would do. Wave at the dying. <laughs> What's a man wave? I'm trying to do it right now. I'm like flexing my bicep, but keeping an <laughs> open palm. <laughs> so in the introduction, which by the way, doesn't introduction seem like it's supposed to be synonymous with 
unnecessary. Like, you could skip this if you want. It's just an introduction. But any book I've ever read, the introduction, you have to know what's in that <laughs> to move forward with the story. It's basically like a chapter zero. He loves starting his books with characters you never see again. And this one, he starts with this married couple who find a man on the side of the road. And the story's not about them at all. But I can't help noticing they have a terrible marriage. <laughs> like you spend 10 minutes inside the head of the husband and you hear how he talks to the wife and what he thinks of her. And it's like, oh, they're not headed to a good place. <laughs> I wonder if Crichton was like, yeah, these people are bumming me out. I'll make some new ones. <laughs> Chapter two. Did you see how there was a critic who wrote a criticism of Crichton? And so in his next book, Crichton modified his name slightly and made him a sex offender. He does that every once in a while because in State of Fear, there's this idiot character and his name is Nat Damon. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed in this one, there's a random character named David Stern. And David Stern was the NBA commissioner when this book came out. Oh. <laughs> like, can you imagine a book today with a character named Roger Goodell, and it just doesn't acknowledge it at all? <laughs> I do think Michael Crichton can be hit or miss with characters, but I do appreciate that he at least goes for it. And his, his introduction to Kate, I think is pretty interesting. There's a lot, uh, there's emotion built into it. He says, she brushed strands of hair back from her face. Kate Erickson was not a pretty girl, as her mother, a homecoming queen at UC, had so often told her. So there's a lot there. But also, I imagine that when they cast a woman in the movie to play this role, when she was like, I'm going to read the book to learn more about the character, I'm sure the director was like, you don't, you don't have to do that. <laughs> I did notice that this is one of those books where every time it mentions a female character, it lets you know whether or not she's attractive. <laughs> <laughs> and the most awkward book that does that is Red Notice, because it's nonfiction. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's also what Facebook originally did. <laughs> also a nonfiction book <laughs> with large helpings of fiction. <laughs> Just to sort of continue that point. With the character Merrick, I see him as a cautionary tale, even though he's not supposed to be. So <laughs> Andre Merrick is this guy who has spent decades studying dead languages and archaic fighting techniques. And he gets a chance to go back in time and use these skills, which <laughs> would never happen. Like it's such, that's what I want. It would be like if some dude had wasted his life becoming fluent in Klingon and he was a <laughs> Approached by NASA, and they're like, we need you for a mission. Turns out Klingons are real. And then he goes back and he marries the most beautiful woman in the era. Yeah, I'm, I'm worried this book did damage by telling certain teenage boys that if they learn how to fight with a broadsword, they can go back to a time when that's cool. <laughs> yeah, no, like all that LARPing when you could have just gotten a second job, that's an investment. <laughs> So in the book, there's this character, Gordon, who's sort of an assistant slash hench person to the main CEO villain. In telling Gordon's backstory, it says, quote, he had been up to his neck in theoretical physicists, the very worst kind. <laughs> You're telling me. <laughs> 
Like, are they bad physicists? Or do they just like, you know, the ones that are, suffer from halitosis? Like, there's no, <laughs> there's no more information. I think Schrodinger came up with his wave equation while he was on vacation with both his wife and his lover. <laughs> so maybe that kind. <laughs> so I, I want to remind you, Dave, that at one point during our Jurassic Park episode... And I don't know if we left this conversation in it, but at one point, things got a little heated when I thought it was fun that Michael Crichton had Ian Malcolm make fun of sports, and you pulled a political debate move of oversimplification by like telling Crichton to just stick to his little castle books. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... It's a heavily researched book with like this massive bibliography studies on relativity, quantum mechanics, multiverse theory, theoretical physics. Like calling this a castle book would be like calling War and Peace, oh, that little argument book. <laughs> oh, no, I agree that this is a very heavily researched book. I still don't agree that this book is any less silly than sports. <laughs> like I really enjoy the book. But I'm just saying the quantitative analytics that goes into running a sports team these days, like it's heavy research for something that at the end you can still make, you can still make the case that it's like a silly endeavor. Mm. But so is like a ton of research for a book about people who go back to castles. <laughs> I enjoy both of them. I'm just saying people who write castle books should not throw stones at sports. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm just looking at it on the surface because the context behind it was he said specifically, like, it's crazy that we pay to cheer at a guy who was throwing a ball into a circle. And maybe <laughs> maybe that's oversimplification on that. And I get that behind it all, there is this massive army of computers in the sports world. But on the surface, it is funny <laughs> to just break it down. And if you were an alien, I think it would be pretty insane. <laughs> compared to a guy reading books and writing a book about research to compare that to like a stadium of 90,000 people watching a, a guy hit a ball with a stick. Oh no, I'm fine with criticizing that one. <laughs> <laughs> I think a large quantity of things that we do as humans are when you break them down, actually pretty silly or dumb or don't have survival value. Mm. And I'm just saying, when we work in one of those things, it can be tempting to point them out in what someone else is doing without realizing we're also in that space. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm definitely in that space. There's nothing I've ever done that if I hadn't done it, someone would be dead. <laughs> <laughs> All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from Timeline. One, you don't actually want to live in the past. Two, fiction can be even more fulfilling when it contains nonfiction. Three, find excuses to play. Four, a bad voice actor can ruin a book. Five, add problems to increase the tension and don't stop. And six, just remember if you time hop too much, you'll get splinched. <laughs> Back when we were one with nature and we could eat all the woolly mammoths we wanted. <laughs> <laughs>